familiar verse, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Do you believe that? Amen. All Scripture is inspired and beneficial for the individual and for the church. So we should seek to know all Scripture and apply it. Even things that aren't easy or culturally acceptable. All Scripture is significant. And this is particularly the case when you find a theme repeated over and over in Scripture. God is trying to tell us something, isn't He? Well, the theme of false teachers pervades Scripture. It's a theme that will not win any popularity contest in our culture that is often driven by more what makes us feel good rather than what is true. You don't hear as much about the threat of false teaching, even in Bible teaching churches, as you should. However, Scripture makes much of this theme, and if we're going to claim to be followers of Christ Jesus I think we should pay careful attention to what the Word of God says. Amen? So, let me give just a brief survey so that you see my point about this being a significant theme in Scripture. About the threat of false teaching and how it arises within the church and the damage that it can bring. So, it's just a a brief survey I apologize in advance. I'm going to belabor my point. So if you're saying in your mind, why does he kind of keep saying these scriptures again and again and again? Well, I'm belaboring my point, okay? It's on purpose. Let me start with Jesus. It could say, we could go back to the Old Testament and speak of some of the things that are spoken in the Old, but just for simplicity's sake, I'll start with Jesus. Matthew 7, 15 to 16, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So, a wolf in sheep's clothing, what does that connote in your mind there, right? Deception and real danger. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus, in Matthew 24, 5, predicted in the future, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 to 18. Paul warns, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, They deceive the minds of naive people. Acts 20, Paul gathers the Ephesian elders to say a farewell to them. And in verses 19 and 20, he says to the elders there, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, again, that imagery of the wolves, right? Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Wolves aren't gentle, are they? They don't spare. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Friends, Paul spent three years in Ephesus, the longest he stayed in any church, yet he warned that in the future, leaders would come into their midst and cause great upheaval. Well, in First and Second Timothy, Paul writes to his apprentice Timothy, who was now serving the church there in Ephesus. Remember where Paul had just given this warning? Ten or so years later, well, lo and behold, it's exactly what took place. There was tremendous upheaval with doctrinal, ethical failings brought in by these false teachers ten years after the Apostle Paul left. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? 1 Timothy 4, 1-2, Paul says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, some of Paul's last words he ever wrote, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Twelve of Paul's letters, he wrote 13, he warns about false teaching. And the only letter he doesn't is Philemon, which is a little tiny personal letter that really wasn't the opportunity to talk about that. So I think Paul was emphatic about the need to be on guard with false teaching. Maybe it was just Paul, right? Paul was just a real doctrinal person and maybe overly dramatic about these things. No. How about Peter? 2 Peter 2.1-2 says, There were also false prophets among the people, Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct, will bring the way of truth into disrepute. You guys still tracking with me? How about John? John, he's the apostle of love. He would never bring that kind of stuff up, right? Not John. 1 John 4, 1-3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the world is from God, in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Notice he doesn't say the Antichrist is going to come just at the end of time, but whoo, we're clear for 2,000 years. No, it's in the world already. Finally, the book of Revelation. We like to study it, see what's going to happen at the end of time, but we forget about the first two chapters, three chapters, excuse me. Jesus addresses seven real-life churches there in Asia Minor, and with those seven churches, three of them, he warns about false teaching. And he's not too happy. He says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, to the church at Thyatira, these words, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So would you agree that I'm not just, you know, making this up, that false teaching is a major concern? Would you do you agree? Is the mic working? Jesus and the apostles focused so much on this theme because they knew Satan would stir people to come inside the church and wreak havoc from the inside. They knew that false teachers would distort the gospel message of salvation so that people follow the wrong Jesus. They knew that false teachers would contradict the genuine gospel and leave, a, and leave a watching world confused as to what is actually the message of Christianity. I think that's a really powerful concern today. We don't even know what the message is. The world wouldn't even know by watching the church, would it? And they knew that false teachers would engage in sinful activities that mar the integrity of the church, leaving genuine Christians just weakened in their faith, right? I mean, how many people have you met that are coming out of a church and there was some kind of scandal or false teaching and they're really damaged, aren't they? Or outsiders just to look and shake their heads and say, what a bunch of crazy hypocrites. So the book of Jude comes along and joins the chorus of warning against false teachers. Last week, we introduced Jude, a letter written to a church or a group of churches that he probably started. Jude was the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. And we looked at verses 1 to 4, where Jude uh, greets the church, and then he states his purpose in writing. Remember, he was going to write about their common salvation, just to write probably a real pastoral letter talking about the glories of the salvation they enjoyed. But then he was compelled to stop what he was doing and to write a different letter appealing to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They were to fight for the faith, the essentials of Christianity. Why? Well, because as he mentions in verse 4, the fa- there were false teachers who had crept into these churches too, unnoticed, who were twisting the grace of God and denying Christ by their actions and their conduct. So now, after we kind of had that opening salvo with the purpose of the book, Jude now moves into the real heart of the letter, and he continues to talk about false teachers in great detail. Jude is probably one of the longest and most detailed discussions about the dangers and the characteristics of false teachers. I think it's incredibly helpful for us to see this and to know this as we live and function as a church. Because heaven forbid, we think that we're ever out of the woods when it comes to that, right? Or that we know how to help and pray other churches in our area or in our country and our world. So, after we kind of looked at our passage here uh, we'll close by discussing a modern example because I don't want you to think, well, that was just back in those days. I want to give a very clear modern example of how false teaching has come into the church in the United States and absolutely wreaked havoc. Okay, 
I want you to see why this is so very relevant. So, if you will, turn to Jude chapter, not chapter, Jude verse 5. There's just one little chapter. If you're wanting to find it, go all the way to the back of your Bible, right before Revelation. So as we turn to verse 5, Jude wants to make clear to the readers that false teachers, though they have influence, though they have power, though they are outwardly, seemingly unscathed by the things that are going on, they too will face judgment. And he gives three examples from the Old Testament that demonstrates the certainty of God's judgment. Jude his readers, the church there, was familiar with these teachings. And so he doesn't go into a lot of detail. He just kind of mentions them very succinctly. And so there's just a lot packed into that. As I was thinking about Jude this week, I'm just thinking, man, this is like a fruitcake, okay? This thing is dense and heavy. He's just compacting these things in there. So I want to talk about it a little bit more so we understand the significance of these examples that he's giving. But the bottom line of all of these examples that he's about to bring forth is that sin brings judgment. Sin brings judgment. All right. So let's see. The first example was the nation of Israel. Everybody with me? Verse five. All right. Verse five. It reads, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. To start, your translations might have a different wording there. Some manuscripts read Lord, while others read Jesus. Obviously, there's very little difference in meaning there. So if you recall from the Old Testament, God miraculously delivered Israel out of Egypt. He performed ten signs, right, that delivered Israel out of Egypt and brought them out into the wilderness and prepared them to go into the promised land that he was going to give them. I mean, they just went through this Red Sea that God parted and everything was looking wonderful for them. Despite all of this, the people persisted in unbelief and constant grumbling, right? I mean, their, nose, their, their clothes are probably still wet from going through the Red Sea, the mist on them, and they're already complaining. Moses, what about this? What about that? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And so this promise of going into the promised land was not met with acceptance. No one believed that God would do this except Joshua and Caleb. All of them doubted. All of them. Numbers 14.11, the Lord says to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? It's incredible. And God was patient with them. But there came a point when God brought judgment, didn't he? And so for that generation... None of them entered into the promised land. It waited that promise for those who are under the age of 20. It was the next generation that went in and inherited the promised land. But all of that generation died in the wilderness over the course of 40 years of just wandering in the wilderness. So God judged Israel in the wilderness for their unbelief. Now he goes to the second example. 
the fallen angels. Verse 6, follow with me, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This is a fun verse. This is a fun verse, a fascinating verse. A lot of debate about this verse. You say, well, who are the angels that he's talking about? Well, there's two main views. The first view is it's referring to the fall of Satan, the fall of Satan. Scripture doesn't give a lot of details about the fall of Satan. But this event we know took place because God would not have created Satan evil. So there must have been some kind of angelic fall where Satan rebelled and presumably took a good chunk of the angels with him in his rebellion. Well, this view is a possibility. And some people do hold it. But I do think that there's a second view that's actually correct. This is, is that he is referring to a different set of angels, the angels in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Please turn with me there. I want you to read this yourselves. Genesis chapter 6. So this is going way back, early days of humanity. Genesis chapter 6. Let's read verses 1 to 4 together. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So in Genesis 6 here, the sons of God are not humans, but a certain type of angel. The word angel is a broad category. There are different types of angels. Did you know that? I mean, there's living creatures, seraphim, obviously demons. And here we bump into this group of angels called the sons of God. Notice I said plural, the sons of God. And in the Hebrew, that phrase, the sons of God, always refers to, to angels, always refers to angels. Let me give you an example. Psalm 29.1 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Literally, it reads, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of God. You might have a footnote in your Bible there, and it does in the ESV. ESV. Job 38.7 teaches that the sons of God were present when the, when the Lord created the universe, they were there. They existed before the universe. Interesting, isn't it? Also, the sons of God are part of the Lord's heavenly council. The Lord is the only ruler in the universe. 
he doesn't need anybody to help him. Let's be very clear about that. But he rules with a council that makes decisions that affects the universe, including humanity. Let me give you another example. Psalm 89, verses 5 to 7 says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly being? Again, it's literally the sons of God. Who among the sons of God is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council? Did you get that? The council of the holy ones and the awesome above all who are around him. Now, if you guys remember from our series in Job, in Job 1, you remember the opening chapter? There was a heavenly council meeting and the sons of God gathered before the Lord. And then Satan showed up there kind of as an intruder. But anyway, there was that heavenly council meeting. Now, just to clarify, in case you're wondering, when we speak of this, this isn't some type of, of pantheon of gods that you find in polytheism, for example. That's not it. With polytheism, you would have different gods, and they're in charge of different things and different roles, and there is no supreme being. Israel was surrounded by polytheism. It was, this is not polytheism. This is the one true supreme God who also has a heavenly council of angelic beings who work under his authority and carry out his task. Shouldn't be a big, big surprise to us, right? I mean, doesn't the Lord give that sort of same responsibility to humanity? Genesis 1, I created you in my image. And then it says in verse 28, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, right? We don't have that in of ourselves, but God has given us that dominion. So is everybody tracking with me here? The sons of God are a group of angels who existed in this type of heavenly council with the Lord. So going back to Genesis 6, some of these sons of God left their proper domain, their place of authority, and had improper relations with women. We only find this passage, this type of angelic sin, in this passage in all of the Bible. But it was very well known among the Jews and widely believed among the Jews. And so Jude echoes this belief that the sons of God, these angels, had left their proper, prestigious, abode, power, and authority and had come to the earth and carried out this sin. Now, before we go to verse 7, notice the Lord's punishment of those angels. It says God keeps them in eternal chains under Gloomy darkness. What a difference that was for them after the judgment. They were in the presence of God, friends. Powerful, celestial, glorious, mighty beings. And now they're kept in chains in gloomy darkness. You say, well, how do you keep an angel in chains? I don't know. But I think God can figure that kind of thing out, right? Not too worried about that one. And so they were judged, and they're also facing a future day of judgment where he will permanently judge fallen angels. For example, in Matthew 8, 29, remember Jesus encountered the man who had a legion of demons inside of him, and the, and the man and the demons cry out, have you come here to torment us before the time? Did you get that? Before the time. There will come a time 
when God will judge these angels and all fallen angels forever? So, so far we've seen God judge the nation of Israel and these fallen angels. Third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 7 we read, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is well known, right? Genesis 19, two visitors, angelic visitors, who take on uh, human form. They come to visit Sodom. Angels do this on occasion. They take on human form. Perhaps that's what they did with Genesis 6. So they come to visit. And when they do, Lot befriends them and brings them into his house. But the townspeople hear about the new visitors. And they demand that Lot hand them over to them for homosexual relations. Now we know in other places, Scripture is clear that homosexual relations are morally wrong as are all sexual relations outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage. So the angels blind the townspeople and they flee the cities with Lot and his family. Then the angels destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and just this sort of cataclysmic judgment that comes down as fire and brimstone rain down on these cities. It was interesting to read this past week how some of the ancient records going back to the first century, for example, the, the famous philosopher Philo describes how even uh, 2,000 years later, you would still see smoke rising from these cities. That's the kind of destruction that was levied out 2,000 years later, still seeing the smoke. So God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual immorality. Before moving on though, before moving on, I want you to see that connection with the previous example. Notice it again, it says in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So Jude, did you see that? He connects Sodom and Gomorrah with the fallen angels because he said likewise in the area of sexual sin. There's no indication at all that when Satan fell, that there was some type of sexual sin involved. So again, I think what Jude is referring to was the fall of angels in Genesis chapter 6. That's the best explanation for what took place. So overall, these these three examples, they're sobering, aren't they? They demonstrate the certainty of judgment. The offenders, whether they're angelic or human, they all incur the wrath of God. You had these mighty, powerful angels who were judged. You have the nation of Israel that God chose out of the nations and had just delivered them. But their sin brought judgment. And then we see with Sodom and Gomorrah just this powerful, cataclysmic judgment. So judgment comes. No one escapes whether you're angels or humans, and certainly not these false teachers who were plaguing these churches or those who were following them. God continues to judge today. He's not changed. Do you believe that? That God has not changed in who He is. 
He has not changed. He continues to judge false teachers and those who follow them. Now it's time for me to give my modern example. Modern example. Theological liberalism is the term that is used for a movement that began in the 19th century within the church to modify the faith, to make it more appealing for modern, scientific, rational hearers. So therefore, no longer was the Bible viewed as being inspired, inerrant, and authoritative for the church. Many events in Scripture were no longer seen as historical, especially miraculous events like the virgin birth or the resurrection. Jesus was demoted from being our Lord to now being our example and how to live our lives. Jesus' death was not an atoning sacrifice for sin, and there was no longer a need for personal conversion. Theological liberalism gained ground in denominations like the Episcopals, Lutherans, Methodists, and Presbyterians, what are often today called mainline denominations. Not all of them, but as a whole, it made a lot of inroads in those denominations. 1923, a gentleman comes along by the name of J. Gresham Machem. He wrote a very influential book called Christianity and Liberalism. Machem was a brilliant scholar and strong defender of the faith. He actually helped to found Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, a very famous seminary. In the book, he compared theological liberalism with Christianity on some key doctrines like God and humanity and salvation and Christ. And he writes these words. He says, An examination of the teachings of liberalism in comparison with those of Christianity will show that at every point the two movements are in direct opposition. So he concluded that liberal theology was not a different version of Christianity, say like different denominations might differ on secondary doctrines, right? It's not what he's saying. Rather, theological liberalism was not Christianity at all. It was an entirely different religion. Liberal Christianity is not Christianity even though it sprang up in the church. Now, it's been almost 100 years since Machen wrote his book, and the effects of theological liberalism have been devastating. Let me just give some statistics about mainline denominations and their membership decrease from 1965 to 2015. These are various denominations. The Christian church, the Disciples of Christ, has seen a 67% decrease in the past 50 years. Are you getting that? So two-thirds of their church is gone. (laughs) You never fail, Ernie. You never fail. The Reformed Church in America, 52% decrease. 
United Church of Christ, I'm sorry, Reformed Church in America was 62%. United Church of Christ, 52%. The Episcopal Church, 49%. Presbyterian Church, USA, 47%. United Methodist Church, 33%. We say, well, that's just America. We've changed so much. Everybody's shrinking big time. No? Here's some biblically orthodox denominations and their membership increased since 1965. The Presbyterian Church in America, 790% increase. Evangelical Free Church in America, 749% increase. Assemblies of God, 430% increase. Southern Baptist Convention, 46%. One researcher noted that based on these trends, that mainline Christianity will be extinct by the year 2039. Isn't that crazy? So we're talking about 20 years based on the trends. Now, the researcher notes that more than likely the, twi- the trends will probably slow down a little bit and there'll probably be, you know, a fragment still around. But even if that happens, isn't that incredible? These, these, these denominations are facing possible extinction while more theologically conservative churches are growing. Do you say that false teaching has an impact? I mean, I, I don't know what more compelling piece of evidence we could possibly give than that, that churches are absolutely on the verge of extinction. And as a footnote, I think it's very likely that the collapse theological collapse of these mainline denominations played a huge role in the massive shift in values in this nation when it comes to things like the sanctity of marriage or the sanctity of life. In other words, if those denominations had held their ground that they once did, there would have retained a consensus in America rather than a place where we are now where the nation is so bitterly and so intractably divided. So friends, just as Jude spoke a warning there uh, about false teaching, about how it springs from within, this same thing happened within theological liberalism as false teachers led people astray. And as a result, you see the utter decimation. And I believe that God has brought judgment. Because if you don't honor Him, He doesn't honor your churches. And if you've come up with an entirely different system of salvation and an entirely different view of Jesus, He's not going to honor that. So the methods might be different than we saw in the Old Testament, but the principle still remains. Sin brings judgment. And God brings judgment for false teachers. He brings judgment for churches who listen and follow them. And it is a powerful and perfect illustration for the church to heed the words that we find in the book of Jude about the danger of false teaching. It can happen to strong denominations. I was thinking even this morning, what on earth would Martin Luther think? The founder of Lutheranism. Or John Wesley with the trends and and things that you see with branches of Methodism. What would these founders think? They started on such a firm footing. But now it has drifted. 
We must take this threat more seriously. Friends, the very existence of the church hangs in the balance. As they say, we are always one generation away from extinction if we fail. So I know that this message is one that does not create a lot of warm fuzzies and will not win popularity contests. But the church has to be about more than just making everybody have warm fuzzies. The church has to be about standing for the truth. Because if we lose the truth, we lose everything. As you see from Jude, and you see from this very clear example, the devastation that it brings. I just sometimes wonder, what if pastors and leaders had been preaching this warning a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago in these churches. Things might have been different. Now I want to bring this down as we close, just on a personal level, kind of talking big picture about false teachers and the dangers they bring. And Jude has been bringing up the point that sin brings judgment and these false teachers will not escape that. But I also don't want us to forget the warnings that he is giving out here and the fact that sin brings judgment. And so it's easy for us just to look at the false teachers and say, well, that's them and these are these churches that are going astray. But God wants us to hear and be reminded about these sober examples of judgment that come forth in the book of Jude and that no one escapes. And all of these examples are really even a greater snapshot or snapshot of a greater judgment, a greater reality that one day every person will stand before God, won't they? Romans 4.12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Every person sitting in this room or standing will give an account of their lives to God one day. And the judgment of God was the only thing that caused distress in the Lord Jesus' life. He faced all kinds of enemies, all kinds of harrowing situations, never was phased. But when he realized that on the cross he was about to face judgment, he was greatly distressed, wasn't he? Because he knew that he was going to take our place and to endure the judgment of God. And there's only one way, friend, to escape the judgment that you see the snapshots in the Old Testament with. There's only, one, there's only one way to escape that final judgment, and that is when we place our faith in Christ alone for salvation. We have to repent of our sins, meaning we turn from our sins, we see how God hates it, we know that He is going to judge it, and we believe that Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be, fully God and fully man who died on the cross so that we might be forgiven. And as a result of his sacrifice, he offers the gift of eternal life for anyone who wants to receive it. Anyone sitting here today who would realize and say, it's not based on my good works, but it's based on trusting what Jesus Christ did on that cross, enduring the judgment of God on my behalf, and I just want to simply trust and believe what he has done. Let today be the day of salvation in your life. And you can do it right now, sitting in your seat. You can pray in your heart, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I want to turn from them and I want to place my faith and trust in Christ.
and receive eternal life and enjoy your presence forever. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we come before you today. And we know that we have read words that are challenging and tough and stop us in our tracks. And Lord, we want to be reminded about that need to be vigilant against false teaching. Lord, may we heed the warnings of Jesus and the apostles. We pray that we would be vigilant to uphold the gospel here in our church. And Lord, we pray for churches around this nation and around our world that they would stay faithful to what has been entrusted to them, not deviate. And Lord, we do pray for churches that have fallen astray. We pray that you would restore them. God, may there be a new day in churches and denominations that have drifted away from You. May they be humbled. May they be broken. And even as they kind of shrink down into oblivion, may they cry out to You and You hear their prayers and bring revival in their midst. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's never placed their faith and trust in Christ, May they see themselves in this story. The sober warning that our sin brings judgment. That this is personal. This isn't just about learning stories from the Old Testament, but it's about each and every one of us and how we need to flee to the Savior, to run to the cross, where alone Jesus finds our way by His death and sacrifice and resurrection. Heavenly Father, we give this time to you now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would bless and honor this time as we remember and celebrate the sacrifice you have made for us. May we take of it in a worthy manner. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.